Well, if you have a Bible, you may want to turn to Genesis 42. And uh, once again, good morning and welcome. If you don't have a Bible, we do have it printed in the bulletin for you, another long passage. And um, we don't, if you're visiting with us today for the first time, we don't always do enormous passages of Scripture. But um, we are at the moment, so um, please be patient with us. We are continuing this morning with our ongoing study of the life of Joseph as found in Genesis 37 to 50, picking up this week where we left off previously with verse 1 of chapter 42 and working through to the end of that chapter. Now if you've been with us for any part of this series then you may have some idea of how the story has developed thus far or if you've read through it in the past yourself, but if you've not been with us and you're not familiar with the story of Joseph, let me just give you a brief synopsis. The story of Joseph begins in the 17th year of his life while he's still living at home with his brother and ten half-brothers. And from the beginning, it is clear that there's already a great deal of bad feeling between he and his siblings, both as a result of his father Jacob's foolish favoritism and as a result of Joseph's own actions and attitudes toward his brothers. All of this sort of comes to a head when God reveals some things to Joseph in a dream, and it... First, uh, he, at first, innocently enough, I think, shares these dreams with his brothers. However, when he later shares a second dream, the excuses of innocence and naivety, at that point at least, seem to fall away. And the dreams that he'd been given showed him in a position of authority over his entire family, including his father. As a consequence of these shared dreams... Joseph's brother's already abundant dislike for him is quickly fanned into outright hatred. And when they're given an opportunity to do away with Joseph while tending their flocks in sort of a remote area, they take up that opportunity. And at first their intent was just to kill him and get it over with. However, the timely intervention of Reuben, the oldest brother, saw that action delayed And instead, they threw him in a pit where he would have died of thirst or starvation, but at least they wouldn't have to watch it. And at this point, a caravan of traders comes along, and someone gets the bright idea that, you know, rather than just killing Joseph, they should sell him and make a little money off of it. And so Joseph gets sold as a slave and eventually ends up the property of a guy named Potiphar, who's the head of Pharaoh's guard, sort of like the head of the secret police. And over time, Joseph, uh, while in Potiphar's service, rises to a level of trust and prominence there. And uh, things are going pretty well for him when Potiphar's wife decides one day that she's going to attempt to seduce Joseph, whom she's had her eye on. This does not work out at all as she had hoped it would. And uh, after being rejected, she takes uh, revenge on Joseph and frames him for crimes he didn't commit. And so he ends up in prison. While in prison, Joseph, through diligent and patient effort, once again making the most of his circumstances, rises to a level of trust and is given authority over all the other prisoners. At some point after this, he comes into contact with two of Pharaoh's personal staff, a a cupbearer and a baker, who have been recently imprisoned. And Joseph is given direct responsibility to look after these guys, and so he does. 
One night, both of these staff people or former staff people will have these strange dreams, the meaning of which is provided for them the next day by God and through Joseph's interpretation. Well, following this, the dreams of both of these men play out exactly as Joseph had said they would, turning out very badly for the baker and very favorably for the cupbearer. And while Joseph has, had asked the cupbearer to take advantage of the moment, to you know, put in a good word for him with Pharaoh once he was restored, the cupbearer neglects to do so for reasons about which we can only speculate. Two years pass. He's still there waiting. And at this point, Pharaoh himself has some strange dreams. And after his magicians and wise men are unable to explain them to him, and he's in despair about this because he really feels like there's something to these dreams, the cupbearer at this point uh, breaks his silence and tells Pharaoh about Joseph and his abilities at interpreting dreams. So Joseph is then summoned from the prison, kind of cleaned up a bit, brought directly to Pharaoh where once again God provides an interpretation of dreams through him. And the dreams essentially have to do with a warning sent by God of a severe seven-year famine that is coming, but which will be preceded by seven years of prosperity. Well, after giving this interpretation, uh, Joseph offers a plan for addressing the approaching disaster announced in these dreams. And uh, following this suggestion, Pharaoh, uh, amazingly, and with what can only be described as an act of God, decides right then and there that he's going to make Joseph his right-hand man. And so uh, he makes him sort of a combination of vice president and head of FEMA, all rolled up into one. Well, the seven years of prosperity kind of come and go, and an enormous quantity of grain is stored up, as Joseph has directed, and now the years of famine are upon them, and people are starting to show up from all over the then-known world because, you know, the word is on the street that... Egypt is the place where you can get uh, grain and bread. So people are kind of pouring in from everywhere. As chapter 42 begins then, Joseph's own people, his Hebrew family, uh, the family of Jacob, have gotten into a pretty tough spot like everybody else. They're running out of food and they're running out of options. And if something isn't done soon, the results are going to be disastrous. That's where our story picks up this morning before we look into that, let's pray together. Father, please help us to see and hear and believe and then live according to the good and right and true things that we see in your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 42, verses 1 to 5. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I've heard that there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Well, as the passage opens, we find Jacob and his eleven sons in their homeland and struggling to make ends meet. 
He discovers that there's food available in Egypt, most likely by making inquiries amongst the various traders that were probably coming and cross, coming and going across their land one way or the other, either toward Egypt or back. And so uh, holding Benjamin back, he sends the rest of his sons to go and buy grain. Now clearly Jacob is still very protective of Benjamin, an instinct that had no doubt been intensified ever since he lost Joseph, the firstborn son of his favorite wife, Rachel. And while perhaps a certain amount of that is understandable, it's also, I, you know, for me at least, a little disheartening to see that even after all this time, even after all that had happened, uh, Jacob does not seem to have learned very much from the troublesome events of the past. We see him still exercising what appears to be for him an incurable favoritism that must have been difficult for the other brothers to cope with. I mean, imagine that you were one of the brothers standing there, trying to maintain your composure as you hear your father say, in essence, I can't let Benjamin go because I don't want anything to happen to him, but you, you can go. Gee, thanks, Dad. I'll, I'll just be going now. It's funny and it's sad. Now, Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and uh, bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. And he said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, No, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you've come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. Well, the brothers arrive in Egypt, and in the providence of God, they walk right up to Joseph, who's there overseeing the dispensing of the grain. And as, as it's been many years now, right, Joseph, uh, he's grown from a boy to a man. He's no doubt adopted the dress and language and mannerisms of the Egyptians, which would include, amongst other things, him being clean-shaven as opposed to being bearded. But uh, you put all that together... And it makes sense that he, he would, uh, Joseph would immediately recognize his brothers, but they would have no idea who he was. He was obviously some sort of official, but that's all they knew. And so, as was the custom, they bowed down low to him. And as they did that, they were no doubt completely oblivious to the fact that in that very moment, they were fulfilling the dream that Joseph had shared with them many years before and which had so infuriated them. But while they were oblivious to what was happening, Joseph was not 
the passage goes out of its way to make it clear, verse 9, that Joseph realized right away what was going on. This was it. This was the thing that he dreamed about. The thing that he may well have begun to doubt would ever happen was finally taking place. And because he realizes this is the moment, because he sees that God is bringing these things to pass, then Joseph has some things to think about here. He's got some decisions to make, and he's got to make them pretty quickly because they're standing right there in front of him. You see, if his brothers are going to be coming under his rule and authority, as his dreams indicated they would, and if even his own father was going to come under his rule and authority, as also indicated by the dreams, then that meant that this long, these long years of separation were almost over. It meant, among other things, that the family was going to be brought back together in some way, that a reunion of some sort was going to take place. But what would that reunion be like? Especially after everything that had happened. No doubt Joseph had thought about these things for a long time. And had reflected on what this reunion might uh, look like. No doubt Joseph would have wondered if he ever might be truly reconciled to his brothers. I mean, could he ever really trust them again? And if so, and here's the $64 question. I'm dating myself by saying that. But here's the question. And that is, what would it take for that sort of real reunion to happen? What would have to occur for a real reconciliation to take place? So again, as his brothers are standing there before him, and they've not yet recognized who he is, Joseph has a decision to make. He could, he could just blurt it all out right here, right now. He could say, hey guys, it's me, it's Joseph. Yay! And then spend the next half hour, half hour convincing them that this is true. And he would eventually be able to convince them. And they would undoubtedly at that point express surprise and wonder and relief. All sorts of things would come out, including great expressions of sorrow and regret. But then that's just the problem. Under the present circumstances, and if he were to do that, of course they would express those sorts of things if Joseph just revealed himself straight away. I mean, here they are, strangers in a foreign land, the mercy of all the might and power of Egypt, on the verge of starvation. And in that situation, even if they did still harbor lingering resentment toward Joseph, they would never in a million years express that sort of thing. Not now. Not with Joseph having the power to take away their very lives. Not with their own father back at home on the verge of starvation. And so while Joseph could have just revealed everything straight away, if he did... He might not ever know for sure what his brother's real feelings were toward him. He might always wonder if they ever felt truly sorry for what they'd done. If they had ever recognized and fully owned up to this grievous sin they had committed. And as long as he wondered that, there would be this question in his mind. There would be this thing 
that stood in between himself and his brothers and which prevented any kind of full or real or lasting reconciliation. So Joseph has a lot to think about here in a short space of time. There's some things he really wants to know, things he really needs to know, now that his brothers are suddenly back in his life. And so right then and there, he makes a quick decision that he will not reveal himself right away, but will instead endeavor to learn what his brothers truly thought and felt about what they'd done so many years before. And the plan that he lands on is to level a charge against his brothers that he knows is not true, saying that they were spies. Now, why would he do this? Well, if their consciences were hardened over what they'd done, then this plan would not have accomplished anything. However, if their consciences were not hardened, but were softened and as a result easily troubled by what they had done, even though a long time ago now, then this admittedly artificial situation, it seems to me, might very well lead them to believe, or at least wonder, if their present difficulties were a visitation of God's justice upon them because of those very things. And this particular charge, spying, in addition to creating a context in which he might learn the true disposition of his brother's hearts, also gave him a, you know, a pretext, a reason, for further inquiring into his brother's lives and circumstances, but without revealing his true identity. Now, in actual fact, there is no record of these additional questions just mentioned, or of any sort of probing interview of on Joseph's part in this chapter, chapter 42. However, when you look ahead to the next chapter, 43, verses 6 to 7, you see there a reference to this very thing, looking back. It says there, Israel, that is Jacob, said, Why did you treat me so badly, talking to his sons, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man, that is Joseph, that you had another brother? And they replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? And what we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? So clearly, Joseph submitted his brothers to a lengthy interrogation. And even though we don't see the questions there themselves in chapter 42... They did take place, and I, but I do think we see the results of those questions reflected here in chapter 42. And it would not surprise me at all to discover that along with everything else, it was the asking of these questions about their family that helped create uh, and helped bring this specific matter of their brother, Joseph, to the surface and which facilitated this connection between those events and what was currently happening to them. As he spoke about their family, including this one who was no more, surely all the memories of why he was no more, surely all the memory of the events of that terrible day would come rushing back in on them. So again, what happens here is that Joseph creates a crisis by accusing his brothers of spying. He then proceeds to ask a lot of questions about their family that would have stirred up a lot of unpleasant memories. 
And then in response to the repeated insistence that they're not spies, he decides he's going to test them. That is, he's going to see if their story checks out. In particular, their story about having a younger brother named Benjamin. But Joseph said to them, it is, um, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. Joseph's test, at least version 1.0, was that nine of them would be detained while one of them made his way back to uh, retrieve the alleged younger brother and bring him back to Joseph. Now, at one level, the reason Joseph wanted them to bring Benjamin back was to check out their story. At least that is what they would have understood the point of this test to be. However, I mean, in reality, Joseph already knew they were telling the truth about Benjamin. And so it seems to me the real point of bringing Benjamin back was not that. He already knew that. It was something else. What was the point? Well, one commentator, Lawson, suggests this. He says that Joseph wants him to bring Benjamin back because he wants to see how they are with Benjamin, who, after all, was also a favorite, a son of Rachel, as Joseph had been. Would they show the same hatred and contempt toward him as they always had toward Joseph? Would they show by their actions that they hadn't learned anything from what had happened? That they hadn't really repented at all? I think Lawson is suggesting that. I think he's on to something. I think that's right. At any rate, that is the test that Joseph wants to initiate. And after announcing it, he throws him in jail for a few days to think things over. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are an honest man, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen? So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Well, after three days, Joseph returns to the jail to talk with his brothers. And when he does, he presents them with an upgrade to the previous test. This is version 1.1. Instead of keeping nine and sending one back, he's going to keep one and send the rest back. Why does he do this? Well, his stated reason is that he fears God which I believe is a way of identifying with his brothers and communicating his true belief that there is a God, that he's accountable to that God for his life and actions. In other words, 
I think that Joseph is saying that he has rethought the matter and does not want to be unduly harsh as he investigates these brothers because basically God's watching. And he knows that. However, what also may be going on here is that after thinking about it for a few days, Joseph realizes at least two things. One is, he realizes that one possible consequence of the former plan might be that the one who returned would just stay and never come back out of fear that all Joseph was doing was trying to round up all the spies or potential spies before he killed a lot of them. And so Joseph's changing his plan like this would hopefully communicate that he was not intending anything like that. The second thing he must have thought about was that under the former plan, his father would have been left on his own without any provisions until such time as things were resolved, which could have been pretty bad. So he changes the plan, at which point the passage says, and they did so, meaning simply that this is what they did. This is the plan that was adopted. It's at this point that a discussion ensues between the brothers in the presence of Joseph and his interpreter, but in their own language, as they assumed that he could not understand what they were saying. And the discussion's important because it reveals very clearly that God has been working on the consciences of these men, so much so that it doesn't take much to get them going. Now, apart from the things we've already considered, the connections made here between their current dilemma and what they had done to Joseph years before, that connection on the surface appears to come out of nowhere However, as we've already seen, Joseph's probing questions about their family, including the one who is no more, seems to have been used by God to further prick their already tender consciences, bringing their guilt quickly to the surface. They recall painfully now how they callously ignored their brother's cries and pleas for mercy and release. And then as they're discussing all these things, Reuben throws in a few comments of his own that could be read as an attempt at self-defense, distancing himself from all this. However, Reuben, I think the truth is, he's been a silent conspirator all these years and so is now as much to blame as they. And I think really the statements here, rather than being a form of self-defense, are actually his making the point that they did, that what they did was not just some kind of momentary, unthinking, fly-off-the-handle kind of action. They did what they did in a cold, calculating manner and in the face of direct opposition from himself, and yet they still did it. In other words, Reuben's point only compounds their guilt. It proves how deliberate and high-handed their sin was. And now the chickens are coming home to roost. Now they're getting their just desserts. Well, at the sound of this, Joseph has to turn away, probably under some pretense, but he turns away and he begins to weep. And I think he weeps, yes, partially because he recalls the pain of all that had happened, I'm sure that's true, but also, I think, because he realizes in that moment that his brothers are capable of and actually do feel real remorse over what they've done. He can see it on their faces, he can hear it in their voices. In other words, this little scene has given him hope. I believe hope that reconciliation just might be possible. 
Well, after he composes himself, he comes back to the cell and and not waiting for them to choose, he selects Simeon as the one to stay, probably because he was the next oldest. And in light of what Reuben has just said, he doesn't want Reuben to undergo any further indignity. Additionally, he might have thought that Reuben would have been useful in convincing his father to let Benjamin go. And as we see, he does play a role. And so he sends him away with grain and provisions and then secretly has their money returned to their bags. There's about a thousand theories on why he did this. You know, secretly returned their money to their bags. The one that makes the most sense to me is that by doing this, he was basically trying to ensure that his brothers would come back and not change their minds out of fear of what might happen. I think Joseph knew that the discovery of the monies would invoke within them or hoped it would invoke within them a desire to clear their names of yet another false charge of being dishonest traitors. I think he knew that it might be useful in getting Jacob to agree as well since for him it would be a matter of honor to clear the names of his sons. And so with that, off they go. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed, and as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And at this their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? And when they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, we're honest men. We've never been spies. We're twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you're not spies but honest men. And I'll deliver your brother to you and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put, Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are about to make, you would bring uh, down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Well, the brothers return home without Simeon and at a stopping point, one of them discovers the return money. Given the already heightened sensitivity of their consciences, pretty, pretty battered by this point, it's not surprising to see that they immediately view this as further evidence of God's justice being meted out. They ask, what is this that God is doing? But the question, of course, rhetorical. They know exactly what God is doing. They then finish their journey and relate all that had happened to their father, including Simeon's detention, the plan for getting a release, which, include, which involved returning with Benjamin. At the conclusion of that retelling, they all proceed to empty their sacks and discover uh, that not just one of them, but all of them have had their money returned to them. And they're immediately gripped with fear at this revelation, and Jacob in particular seems to have become absolutely despondent at this point. 
at least temporarily, showing by his speech that he'd resigned himself to the loss of Joseph and now Simeon and was uh, not about to even consider for a moment sending Benjamin back to Egypt with him. At least not yet. And there in the midst of his bitterness, he expresses himself in a way that shows that he seems to lay at least some portion of the blame for these losses on his sons. Now, some commentators feel that he had actually come to that conclusion after all these years that they had some direct responsibility for Joseph's loss, even though he could never prove it. Other commentators think that he holds them to account in a more indirect fashion, thinking perhaps that if they had made better choices or decisions along the way, if they'd been a little wiser, then perhaps things would not have turned out as they did. Whatever way, it seems clear that he held them responsible at some level And, of course, his intuitions were absolutely correct. Well, seeing his father's state of mind, Reuben makes an offer to trade the life of his two sons for the life of Benjamin. And Reuben does this, I think, not because he thinks that his father would actually, you know, kill his grandsons if Reuben failed to return with Benjamin. But rather, he does it, I think, as a way of expressing how certain he is that this trip will not turn out badly. He's so sure about this that he's prepared to stake the well-being of his own sons on it. Still, and in spite of Reuben's confidence, Jacob at this point is not moved. He's too fearful for Benjamin's life, and on top of that, is pretty sure that if anything did happen to Benjamin, it would be the end of him as well. And that's where the chapter ends. Now, bringing our, uh, our look at just this portion of Joseph's story to a close, there, there's two takeaways from among many possible ones I want to highlight. The first and possible, uh, perhaps most obvious one, I think, is a theme that's been particularly prominent in this story, namely this. It is how our sin does find us out. Here in the lives of Joseph's brothers, we see illustrated the principle clearly stated in the New Testament, places like Galatians 6, the example, the principle of sowing and reaping, which is perhaps more succinctly put in Numbers 32, where it says, your sin will find you out. Joseph's brothers, through this series of events, were forced to reckon with this sobering reality. And it is indeed a sobering reality to know that our sin does, one way or another, always find us out. Either by direct consequence or indirect consequence, by the way things play out as a result of our action or our inaction, our choices or lack thereof. Sometimes we see that consequence by the person we become as a result of our various indulgences. One way or the other, our sin really does find itself. Dorothy Sayers spoke one time about the difference between the law of the stop sign and the law of the fire. The law of the stop sign, she said, was such that you might on occasion drive your car right through a stop sign and suffer no damage and see no consequence. Sin, she said, doesn't work like that. Sin is more like the law of the fire. In other words, the fire says to you, Do not touch, and if you ignore this and attempt to touch it, you put your hand into the blazing flames, you are going to get burned. 
There's no escaping it. The same principle, I think, was part of what she had in mind when she wrote once, people do not break God's laws, they only break themselves upon it. Or as another has so well stated, sooner or later, we all sit down to our banquet of consequences. That is indeed one of the solemn realities to be seen in the verses before us this morning. However, the other thing to be seen right alongside that, as difficult as that truth is, on the other side of our being made to face up to our sin, even in the midst of having to reckon with the consequences of our sin, there is the ever-present possibility and promise of forgiveness and mercy. That too is something that we see or at least are seeing in a preparatory way here which we're going to see in its fullness next week. At the beginning I talked about how Joseph might have chosen to reveal himself straight away but decided not to because apart from seeing any real display of brokenness and remorse on their part no genuine reconciliation could take place. And in a manner that seems deeply counterintuitive, the acknowledgement of their sin did not drive Joseph away from them, but in fact, it evoked within him the deepest of emotions, and it actually drew Joseph toward them. And so it is that this whole scene is a portrayal of the very same gospel dynamic that exists between Christ and those who belong to Him. Those for whom He is a deliverer and a Savior. It's an illustration of the place and priority of repentance and brokenness that are the necessary precursor to the genuine experience of forgiveness and mercy and which reveal grace for the unspeakably beautiful thing that it is. All these things will be seen further and I think more clearly in the next section of Genesis. But even here we see the final preparations of this canvas upon which soon will be painted one of the most glorious portraits of God's mercy in the whole of Scripture. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us to um, I guess be humbled many amongst other things by this reality of the way um, our sin does find us out and um, to be rightfully sobered by that reality. And yet, Father, help us to see, even in how we see it in this passage in an anticipatory way, but the reality of grace that is uh, available for the broken and the remorseful and the repentant, um, even in the midst of these things. Thank you for the great encouragement that we have from your word of these very things. Thank you for that promise and hope of the gospel. Help us, Father, to live as those who believe it. 
Help us to speak to others as those who believe they need to believe it too. We pray these things in Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen. For those who are taking up the morning offering, now's the time we'll do that.